Chapter 6 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 6 My First Experiences in Practice A Strange Character His Honeymoon his Bristol practice. Telegram from Plymouth. Six amusing weeks. A deep plot. My South Sea venture. Furnishing on the cheap. The plot explodes. I have now come to the temporary end of my voyages, which were to be renewed in years to come, and I have reached the time when, under very curious circumstances, I endeavoured to establish myself in medical practice. In a book written some years afterwards called The Stark Monroe Letters, I drew in very close detail the events of the next few years, and there the curious reader will find them more clearly and fully set out than will be to scale in these pages. I would only remark, should any reader reconstruct me or my career from that book, that there are some few incidents there which are imaginary, and that especially the whole incident of the case of a lunatic and of Lord Saltire in Chapter 4 occurred to a friend otherwise the whole history of my association with the man whom I called Collingworth, his extraordinary character, our parting, and the way in which I was left to what seemed certain ruin, were all as depicted. I will here simply give the essentials of the story, and retain the fictitious name. In my last year of study at Annenborough I formed a friendship with this remarkable student. He came of a famous medical family, his father having been a great authority upon zymotic disease. He came also of a famous athletic stock and was a great rugby forward himself, though rather handicapped by the berserk fury with which he would play. He was up to international form, and his younger brother was reckoned by good judges to be about the best forward who ever donned the rose-embroidered jersey of England. Collingworth was as strong mentally as physically. In person he was about five foot nine inches, in height, perfectly built, with a bulldog jaw bloodshot deep-set eyes, overhanging brows, and yellowish hair as stiff as wire, which spurted up above his brows. He was a man born for trouble and adventure, unconventional in his designs and formidable in his powers of execution, a man of action with a big but incalculable brain guiding the action. He died in early middle age, and I understand that an autopsy reveals some cerebral abnormality so that there was no doubt a pathological element in his strange explosive character. For some reason he took a fancy to me, and appeared to attach an undue importance to my advice. When I met him first he had just indulged in one of his wild escapades, which ended usually in a fight or in a transitory appearance in a police court, but on this occasion was more serious and permanent. He had run off with a charming young lady, and married her, she being a ward in chancery and under age, However, the deed was done, and all the lawyers in the world could not undo it, though they might punish the culprit. He told me how he and the lady had gone over a Bradshaw with the intention that when they came on a station, of which neither of them had ever heard, they would make for that place and spend their honeymoon there. They came, therefore, upon some awful name, Clodpole in the Marsh, or something of the kind, and there they sojourned in the village inn. Collingworth stained his yellow hair black, but the stain took in some places and not in others, 
so that he looked as if he had escaped from Barnum's show. What club pole in the marsh could have thought of such an extraordinary couple I cannot imagine, and it is probably the one occasion on which it ever buzzed. I cannot think of any surer way of getting publicity than that which Cullingworth took to avoid detection. In London they would have been perfectly unobserved. I remember that for years Cullingworth's hair presented curious, iridescent tints which were the remains of his disguise. He brought his bride safely to Edinburgh, where they hired a flat, and lived in it without furnishing it, save for the absolutely needful. I have dined with them there on an apple dumpling, seated on a pile of thick volumes, as there was no chair. We introduced them to a few friends, did what we could for the lonely lady, and finally they drifted off, and for a time we heard no more. Just before I started for Africa, I got a long telegram from Cullingworth, imploring me to go to Bristol, as he needed my advice. I was in Birmingham, and I set forth at once. When I reached Bristol, he conducted me to a fine mansion, and there poured out his tale of woe. He had started in great style, hoping to rally the remains of his father's patience, but his money had run out. He was dunned by his tradespeople. There were no patients, and what was he to do? We had a joyous, riotous time for two days, for there was an exuberant atmosphere about the man which rose above all trouble. The only advice I could give was that he should make a composition with his creditors. I heard afterwards that he assembled them, addressed them in a long and emotional speech, reduced them almost to tears with his picture of the struggles of a deserving young man, and finally got a unanimous vote of confidence from them with full consent that he should pay at his own leisure. It was the sort of thing that he would do, and tell the story afterwards with a bull's roar of laughter which could be heard down the street. When I had been back a couple of months from Africa, I received another telegram, he always telegraphed and never wrote, which ran in some such way as this. Started here last June. Colossal success. Come down by next train if possible. Plenty of room for you. Splendid opening. The telegram was stamped Plymouth. The second, even more explosive telegram upbraided me for delay and guaranteed me £300 the first year. This looked like business, so off I went. The events of the next six weeks in the late spring and early summer of 1882 were more fitted for some rollicking novel than for the sober pages of a voracious chronicle. The conditions which I found at Plymouth were incredible. In a short time this man, half genius and half quack, had founded a practice worth several thousand pounds of ready money in the year. Free consultations but pay for your medicine was his slogan, and as he charged a good price for the latter, it worked out all the same in the end. The mere words, free consultations, attracted crowds. He used drugs in a heroic and indiscriminate manner which produced dramatic results, but at an unjustifiable risk. I remember one instance where dropsy had disappeared before a severe dose of croton oil in a way that set all the gossips talking. People flocked into the town from twenty and thirty miles round, and not only his waiting rooms, but his stairs and his passages were crammed. His behaviour to them was extraordinary. He roared and shouted, scolded them, joked them, pushed them about, and pursued them sometimes into the street, or addressed them collectively from the landing. A morning with him when the practice was in full blast was as funny as any pantomime, and I was exhausted with laughter. He had a well-worn volume on medical jurisprudence, which he pretended was the Bible, and he swore old women on it that they would drink no more tea. 
I have no doubt he did a great deal of good, for there was reason and knowledge behind all that he did, but his manner of doing it was unorthodox in the extreme. His wife made up the prescriptions at a pigeonhole at the end of a passage, and received the price which was marked on the label, carried down by the patient. Every evening Collingworth walked back to his great residential house upon the hoe, bearing his bag of silver, his coat flying, his hat on the back of his head, and his great fangs grinning up at every doctor whose disgusted face showed at a window. Collingworth had rigged me up a room, furnished with one table and two chairs, in which I could take surgical or other cases which he did not care to handle. I fear that my professional manners were very unexciting after his more flamboyant efforts, which I could not imitate even if I would. I had, however, a steady dribble of patience, and it looked as if I might build something up. I went up country once and operated upon an old fellow's nose, which had contracted cancer through his holding the bowl of a short clay pipe immediately beneath it. I left him with an aristocratic, not to say supercilious organ, which was the wonder of the village, and might have been the foundation of my fame. But there were other influences at work, and the threads of fate were shooting out at strange unexpected angles. My mother had greatly resented my association with Cullingworth. Her family pride had been aroused, and justly as I can now see, though my wanderings had left me rather too bohemian and careless upon points of etiquette, but I liked Cullingworth, and even now I can't help liking him, and I admired his strong qualities and enjoyed his company and the extraordinary situations which arose from any association with him. This resistance upon my part and my defence of my friend annoyed my mother the more, and she wrote me several letters of remonstrance which certainly dealt rather faithfully with his character, as it appeared to her. I was careless of my papers, and these letters were read both by Collingworth and his wife. I do them no injustice in saying this, for they finally admitted it. Apparently he imagined, he was a man of strange suspicions and secret plottings, that I was a party to such sentiments, whereas they were actually called forth by my defence of him. His manner changed, and more than once I caught his fierce grey eyes looking furtively at me with a strange sullen expression, so much so that I asked him what was the matter. He was actually scheming my ruin, which would be nothing financially, since I had nothing to lose, but would be much both to my mother and me if it touched my honour. One day he came to me and told me that he thought my presence complicated his practice, and that we had better part. I agreed in all good humour, assuring him that I had not come to hurt him, and that I was very grateful for what he had done, even if it came to nothing. He then strongly advised me to go into practice myself. I replied that I had no capital. He answered that he would see to that, that he would allow me a pound a week until I got my feet under me, and that I could repay it at leisure. I thanked him warmly, and after looking at Tavistock, I finally decided that Portsmouth would be a good place, the only reason being that I knew the conditions at Plymouth, and Portsmouth seemed analogous. I boarded an Irish steamer, therefore, and about... July of 1882 I started off by sea, with one small trunk containing all my earthly possessions, to start practice in a town in which I knew no single soul. My cash balance was under £10, and I knew not only that I had to meet all present expenses upon this, but that I had to furnish a house upon it. On the other hand, the weekly pound should easily cover all personal needs, and I had the devil-may-care optimism of youth as to the future. 
When I arrived at Portsmouth, I went into lodgings for a week. On the very first night, with that curious faculty for running into dramatic situations, which has always been with me, I became involved in a street fight with a rough who was beating, or rather kicking, a woman. It was a strange start, and after I began my practice, one of the first people to whom I opened my door was this very rascal. I don't suppose he recognised me, but I could have sworn to him. I emerged from the fray without much damage, and was very glad to escape some serious scandal. It was the second time that I had got knocked about in defence of beauty in distress. I spent a week in marking down the unoccupied houses, and finally settled at forty pounds a year into Bush Villa, which a kindly landlord has now called Doyle House. I was terrified lest the agent should ask for a deposit, but the name of my C.B. uncle, as reference, turned the scale in my favour. Having secured the empty house and its key, I went down to a sale in Portsea, and for about four pounds secured quite a lot of second-hand, possibly tenth-hand, furniture. It met my needs, and enabled me to make one room possible for patients, with three chairs, a table, and a central patch of carpet. I had a bed of sorts and a mattress upstairs. I fixed up the plate which I had brought from Plymouth, bought a red lamp on tick, and fairly settled down in receipt of custom. When all was done, I had a couple of pounds in hand. Servants, of course, were out of the question, so I polished my own plate every morning, brushed down my front, and kept the house reasonably clean. I found that I could live quite easily and well on less than a shilling a day, so I could hold out for a long period. I had at this time contributed several stories to London Society, a magazine now defunct, but then flourishing under the editorship of a Mr Hogg. In the April 1882 number, I had a story, now happily forgotten, called Bones, while in the preceding Christmas number I had another, The Gully of Blueman's Dyke, both of them feeble echoes of Bret Hart. These, with the stories already mentioned, made up my whole output at this time. I explained to Mr Hogg how I was situated, and wrote for him a new tale for his Christmas number entitled My Friend the Murderer. Hogg behaved very well and sent me ten pounds, which I laid by for my first quarter's rent. I was not so pleased with him when, years later, he claimed the full copyright of all these immature stories, and published them in a volume with my name attached. Have a care, young authors, have a care, or your worst enemy will be your early self. It was as well that I had that ten pounds, for Collingworth, having learned that I was fairly committed, with my lease signed, now hurled his thunderbolt, which he thought would crush me. It was a curt letter, not a telegram for a wonder, in which he admitted that my letters had been read, expressed surprise that such a correspondence should have gone on while I was under his roof, and declared that he could have nothing more to do with me. He had, of course, no real grievance, but I am quite willing to admit that he honestly thought he had. But his method of revenge was a strange example of the schemings of a morbid mind. For a moment I was staggered, but my boats were burned and I must go forward. I sent back a derisive reply to Collingworth and put him out of my head forever. Indeed, I heard of him no more until some five years later I read the news of his premature death. He was a remarkable man, and narrowly escaped being a great one. I fear that he lived up to his great income, and left his wife but poorly off. End of chapter 6